When D'Angelo was identified as the VR and EAR, we thought we'd quickly understand why the cases had long breaks, especially during the summer. We assume law enforcement has the answer, since they've spoken to all of his family members, but we're still left guessing. It was always a big question for us, since it could have been a clue that led to someone who was out of the area or worked nights during those breaks. The other option was that he just shifted his activities to other areas or MOs, and law enforcement hadn't connected them. As we've been going back and looking at all of our possible cases, we've mainly been finding additional crimes during times of high VR or EAR activity. The summer of 1977 is an exception. It started with Nancy's attack in July and continued with the kidnapping and murder of Linda Sue Kukendall and Christine Riley on Thursday, August 18, 1977. Linda Kukendall was 15 years old and went to El Camino High School. Her friend Christine Riley was 16 and attended Rancho Cordova High. Linda had been staying at Christine's house on Ambassador Drive for a week, but at about 1 p.m. they called family members and a friend to say they were leaving for Linda's house on Panama Avenue, directly across the river. There were no reported sightings of them or any further contact. They simply vanished. Linda was 5 feet 5 inches tall, 120 pounds, and she had brown hair and blue eyes. She was wearing a white knit top and blue jeans and carrying a dark blue purse with wooden handles. She was not wearing any shoes. Christine was 5 feet 4 inches tall, 105 pounds, with blonde hair and blue eyes. She was wearing a blue denim halter top and Levi's with a swivel snap key holder hanging from her belt. Christine was not carrying a purse or wallet. The girls had not packed anything or taken any money other than possibly local bus fare. The girls' normal route was to walk up Rossmore and then east on Coloma Road to Sunrise Boulevard, and then they followed Fair Oaks. Unfortunately, we'll never know if the girls were seen walking or hitchhiking after they left Christine's house because the Sacramento sheriffs treated the girls as runaways and did not notify the public that they were missing. Obviously, the best information is going to come in immediately after the event, Memories fade and people move out of the area, so every day that passes makes it less likely that the police will receive critical tips. We don't understand why the deputies would assume that girls would run away from home without shoes or a purse, especially since they had a friend expecting to see them that afternoon. Sadly, the girls had not run away. On Thursday, December 8, 1977, a photographer walking along a secluded ravine found a portion of a skull in a creek bed off Latrobe Road about one mile northeast of the town of Latrobe in El Dorado County. The area is remote, but only a 20-minute drive from Christine's house. A search the next day discovered the girls' bodies and their clothing neatly folded under some nearby rocks. They were identified through dental records, and both had died from blows to the head, likely the day they disappeared. It had only been three months, but by the time Linda and Christine were found, media and law enforcement attention had moved on to a new double homicide. On Tuesday, October 4th, 1977, Kimberly Best and Paige Sinclair found themselves standing on the Madison Avenue on-ramp to Interstate 80 near American River College. Both girls were 15-year-old high school sophomores who had run away from home in Dallas, Oregon. The girls were on the last leg of their trip. 
Their plan seemed to be to get jobs at Club Prima Donna, a casino and restaurant in Reno. Several witnesses reported seeing the girls on the on-ramp, but the time estimates ranged from 9 to 11 a.m. The next day, at 10.45 a.m., two deer hunters were driving along Upper Lake Clementine Road and noticed a large amount of blood on the roadway. Thinking that the blood may belong to a deer, they stopped and investigated. Looking a few feet down the embankment, they saw the bodies of both girls lying on their backs. The location was about seven miles northeast of where the I-80 runs through the city of Auburn in Placer County. While the area was remote, the dirt road was the main route to a popular beach recreation area on Lake Clementine. The coroner confirmed that the girls had been killed shortly after they were last seen on the on-ramp the day before. Kimberly Best was found wearing her socks and moccasins with her underpants around her ankles. Her blouse was torn and appeared to be pulled up around her neck. We're not sure if she had been wearing a skirt or pants and if that article was found at the scene. Kimberly had died from a close-range shot to her right temple from a 380 automatic. There were no physical signs of a sexual assault and lab results were also negative. Paige Sinclair was fully clothed, but her blouse was drawn up around her shoulders. She'd been bludgeoned to death by what appeared to be two different unknown weapons. She'd been struck at least 20 times and her face was also beaten. She had not been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner placed the time of death for both girls at no earlier than 3 p.m. the day before, so about six hours after they were last seen at the Madison on-ramp. Near the bodies, investigators found a green and yellow suitcase, which had clothing and jewelry belonging to the victims, and a suede coat. According to police reports, there were also several items found near the bodies that were not collected by Placer sheriffs, including soft drink and beer cans, a shotgun shell, a notebook, cigarette papers, and a cigarette pack. So, we have no idea if any of these items had fingerprints, blood, or fibers, and we don't know what writing was in or on the notebook. None of the girls' belongings were tested for evidence either. When news of the girls' murders broke, police received several tips from citizens who said they saw the girls either on the Madison on-ramp or in Auburn near the intersection of I-80 and Auburn Forest Hill Road. One of the tips came from someone who identified himself as a Nevada City businessman. He refused to provide his name or contact information. He said that he saw the girls getting into a white Ford pickup truck, and we believe he provided the license plate number. Using that license number, they started investigating its owner, Kenneth Lane. He was a 26-year-old auto mechanics student at American River College. He had recently received a medical retirement as an Air Force sergeant after being treated for colon cancer. He lived with his girlfriend at a house in Citrus Heights. Unfortunately for law enforcement, they couldn't use the tip from the anonymous caller as the basis for a search warrant for Lane's house or vehicle, so it appears they used a different witness in a creative way. A woman named DeCosta told a wild story about seeing the girls getting into a truck and feeling like they were going to be killed, so she repeated the license number to herself. Sadly, she was only able to remember one of the seven numbers from the license plate. 
Placer County sheriffs then took her to be hypnotized, and miraculously, she was able to recall six of the seven numbers. First of all, a few years after that, the California Supreme Court ruled that testimony from hypnotized witnesses was not admissible, and cases that used it were overturned. So, this would have been a fatal flaw in the Lane case, no matter what else happened. Second, what a bunch of crap. Placer sheriffs got the license plate number from an anonymous phone call then fed the numbers to DaCosta during the hypnosis session. Apparently, they thought having her pretend to remember six was more believable than if she recovered all seven. They then used DaCosta's statement as the basis for their entire case against Lane and suppressed the fact of the anonymous tip from Lane, his defense counsel, and the court. Needless to say, we have a lot of questions about the supposed Nevada City businessman who just happened to point the finger at Lane's truck, and then disappeared from the case forever. The hypnosis was far from the only problem with DaCosta as a witness. When she initially contacted police, it was to say that she'd seen the girls hitchhiking on the Madison on-ramp at 11 a.m. As time progressed, her story changed and grew. First, she added that she saw them getting into a truck, but couldn't remember details. By the time the entire case was over in 1979, she had remembered the license plate, described it as a new Ford, identified the girls and their clothing, and ID'd Lane as the driver. Oh, and she changed the time she saw them to fit the other facts of the case. It was no longer 11 a.m., now it was 9 a.m. We can just hear the suggestive questioning now. Well, Mrs. DaCosta, are you sure it wasn't closer to 9 when you saw them? Based on her identification of the license plate, Lane was arrested and charged in both murders, and the DA was seeking the death penalty. Kimberly and Paige were killed on October 4th, and Placer investigators first approached Lane at his house on the 14th. He admitted to familiarity with the area where the girls were found. He had shot and buried his terminally ill dog about a mile away from the road where the girls were killed. The timing of that is unclear, but it was somewhere between a day to two weeks before the homicides. Lane told the detectives about the dog and then went out to his truck to give them the 380 handgun he had used. Everyone knows where this story is going. The gun was missing, and Lane claimed it must have been stolen from the glove box of the truck. Lane, believing the cartridges and the slugs from the dog would clear him, directed investigators to the site where the dog was buried, and to a known slug from the gun that had accidentally discharged in his mother's house. Giant spoiler alert! The crime lab in Fresno determined that the slugs and cartridges from Lane's missing gun were consistent with the weapon that murdered Kimberly Best, and that turned out to be the only physical evidence tying him to the murders. We don't know the degree of scientific certainty in the ballistics match, but at some point the defense seemed to admit that the girls were killed with Lane's missing gun, and simply argued that it had been stolen and used by the killer. After Lane was questioned on Friday the 14th, investigators obtained a search warrant for his house, truck, and the site where the dog was buried. They conducted all of those searches on Saturday the 15th, and then obtained an arrest warrant on the 16th. One thing that was missing from all their searches, 
the gun used to shoot Kimberly, and the object or objects used to bludgeon Paige. They had no murder weapons, so later that next week, investigators returned to Lane's house and seized an auto body hammer from the kitchen counter. Lane's girlfriend said she'd brought it in from the garage the night of Lane's arrest and used it to nail up a sheet over the kitchen window because Press and others were looking in on the house, and she was afraid since she was now alone. The hammer tested negative for blood, hair, and fibers, and the medical examiner could not match it to the head wounds. Normally, that would be called not the murder weapon, but in a Herculean effort, the DA argued that the unidentified second bludgeoning weapon must have covered the wounds caused by the hammer and confused the marks. The state also said that the reason the hammer had been in the kitchen was because Lane had used the kitchen sink to wash off all of the evidence and then left it on the counter to dry. Well, then why wasn't it seen and taken into evidence on the 15th? Why did it only appear in the kitchen after Lane's arrest, just as his girlfriend had said? The DA had an answer for that, too, in the form of testimony from a deputy who said he did see it on the counter when they were collecting evidence, but he did not note or collect it. Why tell an obvious lie to bolster a piece of evidence that clearly wasn't the murder weapon? Because they had no case. So now you've heard all of the evidence against Lane presented at trial. DaCosta said she saw the girls getting into Lane's truck and heading north on I-80 at 9 a.m., and she positively identified the girls and Lane. The crime lab had some certainty that Kimberly was killed with Lane's missing gun, and there was a hammer collected from Lane's house after his arrest that contained no evidence and could not be matched to the wounds. That is the entire case against Lane. If you're thinking no jury would send a man to death row based on that, you'd be right. Three juries who heard the case refused to do it. Immediately after obtaining the grand jury indictment against Lane, the DA released the transcript to the press. This violated state law, which required that it be withheld for at least 10 days after the defense had it. Lane's team were not provided the indictment or transcript until a day after the press received it. The judge came close to dismissing the case after that blatant violation, but settled on a change of venue instead. That seemed like fair punishment, since the DA had attempted to taint the jury pool with information which might not be admitted at trial and to which the defense had not been able to respond due to the nature of grand juries. The judge determined that the DA had tainted the jury pool in Placer and Sacramento counties and moved the trial to Sonoma County. The medical examiner determined that the earliest the girls were killed was 3 p.m., which meant that Lane would have been unseen by anyone between 9 a.m. and at least 4 p.m., possibly as late as 9 p.m. However, he was marked present at his first class of the morning at American River College at 7.45 a.m., and his instructor remembered him being there. There was no record of attendance for his noon class, but that was common for that instructor, and Lane claimed he had attended. Lane's girlfriend said that she drove Lane to school in the truck, dropped him off at 7.30, and picked him up at 1 p.m. when his noon class ended. She said she was with him for the rest of the day and evening, and Lane produced a cash receipt for a load of gravel they bought in Sacramento at about 3 p.m. 
Other than DaCosta, there was nobody who claimed to see Lane on or near I-80 or with the girls that day. By the time Lane went to trial, he and his girlfriend had split, but she continued to tell the same story throughout the case. She had the truck all morning, and she was with Lane running errands in Sacramento when the girls were being killed in the hills above Auburn. If she told the truth, it was impossible for Lane to kidnap or kill Paige and Kimberly, no matter what DaCosta thought she saw. Both stories could not be true. Also, it was undisputed that he was in class at American River College that morning, and nobody saw him leave. The hammer was ridiculous and would never be allowed at trial today. The DA had claimed Lane had washed it of evidence, presumably on October 4th. There was no evidence presented that it had been cleaned, and it was not collected during the warrant on the 15th. It makes no sense that Lane would have disposed of the gun, but left the other murder weapon sitting on the kitchen counter for two weeks. Additionally, one would expect that he would have moved it back to the garage or disposed of it after investigators came and talked to him on the 14th. There was no credible evidence that the hammer was ever inside the house until after Lane's arrest on the 16th. The medical examiner also failed to match it to Paige's wounds. So how did it ever get into the courtroom? We have no idea. By far and away, the most damning evidence was the ballistics match. We're not clear how certain the match was. We've seen differing statements about whether it was a match or just consistent. Was it the same type of gun, same make and model, or that specific gun to the exclusion of all others? We don't know. However, we're willing to believe that it was Lane's gun and that it had been stolen from his truck. He did seem to expect to find it when the deputies came to question him, and he volunteered the information about using it on the dog and led them to the dog's location and the slug at his mother's house. Honestly, why dispose of the gun and then tell them where they could find matching ballistics? To be fair, criminals are often stupid and overconfident, but there's nothing else about Lane that screams idiot. There is a simple explanation here. Someone stole the gun from Lane's truck and then called in the tip with his license plate number. After the defense finally learned of the Nevada City businessman, Placer DA and investigators admitted that they had never tried to locate him or put out a public plea in Nevada City asking him to come forward. Why had they hidden the tip from the defense? Because if the court knew that the license number came from an anonymous tip, it couldn't serve as reliable information to support probable cause for a warrant. That's why DaCosta kept revising her story, added numbers to the license plate, and changed the time. The DA needed an identified witness that appeared reliable and could be cross-examined under oath. They put DaCosta on the stand to tell the story they had learned from the anonymous phone tip. What the DA didn't have is even more telling. Not a trace of the girls were found in Lane's truck or house. No fingerprints, blood, fibers, or hair. Nothing, not a speck. Although it was possible that Lane had cleaned the truck in the two weeks before it was seized, there was no testimony that anyone had seen him doing that or that the inside of the truck was unusually clean. Additionally, the crime scene was free of all traces of Lane. Nothing found on the girls, none of his footprints or tire tracks, not one thing. Nobody reported seeing Lane or his truck near the scene. 
Two things really bother us about the bullet casings found by the girls. There were two matching casings, but Kimberly had only been shot once. There was no explanation for the second bullet. Also, no fingerprints were found on either casing. He loaded the weapon wearing gloves, but didn't bother to take the casings with him. He wiped off the bullets as he loaded the gun. The other big thing missing in the DA's case was a motive. Neither girl was sexually assaulted. Although both had their blouses pushed up, they'd been rolled, pushed, or dragged down an embankment. So that could have happened as they were being moved. Also, it's possible that the killer had wanted it to appear that the motive was sexual assault. Lane had no history of violence, yet the DA asked the jurors to believe that Lane had gone to school like normal, left school during class, which he had no history of doing, and then kidnapped Paige and Kimberly after randomly happening upon them. Why? There was no answer. It appeared that the girls were killed right on the road and then placed out of sight down the embankment. Needless to say, there were hundreds of nearby places where the killer could have been alone with the girls for hours and then hidden them where they never would be found. But he didn't. Although the dirt road is remote, being about seven miles from Auburn, it was well-traveled. At the time the girls were killed, there was a group of young people permanently camping on the beach below. The area was also a favorite teen party spot, and it was hunting season. The killer left a huge pool of blood right in the middle of the road, and the girls were only about four feet off the roadway. The killer wanted them to be found quickly. The DA tried to make a big deal about the fact that Lane was familiar with the area since he'd buried the dog at a campsite within a few miles of the scene. However, the road was known to just about everyone who swam, hunted, camped, or liked to party. Also, it was near a gold mining operation that had only recently stopped dredging that area of the river. Anyone who'd worked on the dredging or gone there to look for gold that washed down to the beach would have known that road. Two things that should have really bothered investigators were the witnesses who placed Kimberly and Page near the I-80 in Auburn between 9.15 and 9.45 a.m., and the medical examiner's time of death as being after 3 p.m. By all accounts, it sounds as if the girls got a ride from the Madison on-ramp near Citrus Heights and then may have been dropped off by that driver in Auburn. If that's true, then the last place they were seen was in the city of Auburn, at the base of Forest Hill Road, which led directly to where they were killed. That would make all of DaCosta's testimony meaningless, since the girls exited the first ride safely. Also, if the girls weren't killed until after 3 p.m., what would Lane have been doing with them all of that time, and why didn't anyone see them or Lane's truck? Time-of-death estimates turned out to be much less reliable than medical examiners thought in the 1970s, so we don't feel that 3 p.m. is a safe estimate. It probably could have been any time the day before they were found. All of the uncertainty made it difficult for Lane to mount a defense. Did anyone actually see the girls in a truck on the Madison on-ramp or just hitchhiking there? What time were they last seen? Was it 11 a.m., as DaCosta originally said, 9 a.m., as she said at trial, between 9.15 to 9.45 in Auburn, as other witnesses said, or at 3 p.m. in Auburn, talking to some biker types. What time were the girls killed? 10 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 p.m.? Nobody really knew for sure. 
Two weeks had passed by the time police started questioning classmates about Lane, and they couldn't be sure they were even remembering the correct day, let alone that he was working on his project the entire class time. There are really only two options in the Lane case. His girlfriend lied to police and on the witness stand at three trials, and she didn't drive him to school or spend the afternoon with him. He drove the truck to school, snuck out of class early, took the girls and killed them with his gun and an unknown bludgeoning weapon, and erased all traces of the crime except the bullet in Kimberly and the two casings at the scene. Or, some unknown offender stole the gun from his glove box, killed the girls, and called the police with an anonymous tip that he'd seen the girls getting into a white pickup truck with Lane's license plate. We've thought about the idea that it wasn't Lane's gun, and he had absolutely nothing to do with the case, but his gun was missing, so that seems unlikely. It's hard to believe that the DA ever took this case to trial once, let alone three times, at a staggering cost of $250,000. Sonoma County was largely rural and white, and would have been pro-conviction, but the closest they got was 7-5 to five for guilty. The other juries were split 6-6. Six, six. After the second trial, Lane was released on bail, and the charges were dismissed after the third trial. He got married and lived another 20 years before cancer caught up with him again. The lack of motive really troubled the jurors, and there was no evidence of Lane being violent or creepy in the past. He took the stand in his own defense, and his girlfriend appeared credible. Half of the jurors voted to acquit him. We have to assume that they were in the best position to assess the witnesses and evidence, and they believed that he had been framed by the real killer. Let's just say out loud what we're all thinking. D'Angelo was working for Auburn PD in October of 1977, and he could have picked up the girls for hitchhiking and killed them. He would have had no trouble getting them into his car under color of his badge, and he knew the area like the back of his hand. However, that would mean that he took the gun from Lane's truck and then managed to direct law enforcement's attention to Lane. Framed. Nonsensically, they investigated Lane as possibly being the EAR, but when the charges against him were dropped, they never went back to see if the EAR had killed the girls. Obviously, the area around the Madison on-ramp was one of the EAR's most active zones. Everyone agreed that the girls were likely killed by a local, someone who knew the Auburn area, rather than someone just driving through on the interstate. More than that, though, the EAR did something that felt like a message. Lane lived west of I-80 on Paco Court, and the EAR always stayed on the east side of the interstate, until he didn't. Lane was arrested on October 16th, and the EAR hit on the 21st, on the west side of the interstate, about 20 blocks in a straight line from Lane's house, and exactly halfway between Lane's house and the Madison on-ramp. That same day, the Sacramento Bee had run a story about Lane's arraignment. Out of all the places D'Angelo could have hit that week, why right there? This is particularly striking to us because we've been yelling about this same type of messaging for years. The events after Jennifer Armour was found and Sheriff Wiley declared that there was no reason to think she'd been murdered were insane. 
The VR and Larry Cat burglar went on a spree and hit 27 houses in two days and ended by stealing a gun from the bedroom of a sleeping TCSO deputy. Similarly, after TCSO arrested an innocent teen for a masked rape attempt, the next night an intruder attacked the sleeping neighbor of a different TCSO deputy. When TCSO publicly got it wrong, the VR always seemed to respond. Another example of this was continuing the VR MO when he moved to Sacramento. He could have stopped stealing piggy banks and blue chip stamps and leaving open escape routes, but he didn't. He also didn't need to keep planting stolen items at different crime scenes, something Sergeant Vaughn immediately noticed. Not only did VPD jump on that unique MO point, so did Clifton's attorney and others assisting with his appeal. In the end, none of it helped VPD catch the VR or Clifton get a new trial, but it was an arrogant, unnecessary risk that was meant to show TCSO that they'd got the wrong guy. Again. This all seems stupid, right? If you commit a crime and get away with it, either through police incompetence or successful framing, why would you then do something obvious to draw attention to the mistake? Presumably to express your superiority and make the police look stupid. We've always felt that it's part of the same behavior that made the EAR start hitting couples after Sacramento Sheriff said they were safe, or attack the man who stood up at the community meeting. D'Angelo increased the risk of getting caught, yet he did it anyway. The game with the police was always a huge part of the motivation. Maintaining the Vasilia Ransacker MO for almost two years was intentional and took great effort. In fact, for most of the series, he only hit on Friday and Saturday nights to keep the pattern obvious. When he wanted to do something that wouldn't be connected to the VR, he simply moved into TCSO, Tulare PD, or Exeter PD jurisdiction, or used different methods. For reasons we don't totally understand, he continued the VR MO when he moved back to Sacramento. He didn't want to be caught, but he craved notoriety and the press attention and community meetings definitely fed his ego. D'Angelo also loved red herrings, which, as we've said before, served the dual purpose of directing the investigation away from him and keeping the police busy chasing false leads. The framing behavior was similar but more complicated. We honestly can't tell how much of the framing was to protect himself and how much was a power trip over the innocent victims and investigators. The ransackings, the attacks, the press coverage, the community terror, the innocent men arrested, tried, or convicted, and making law enforcement look stupid all made D'Angelo feel powerful. And recognizing that power and cruelty were his main motivations is critical to understanding his actions. This all brings us back to the pattern of D'Angelo responding to public statements made by police agencies investigating his cases. We have to wonder if he was aware of the May 18, 1977 news stories about VPD connecting the VR and DAR and traveling to Sacramento to share information and what his response to that would be. His brother and sister still lived in Exeter and we know that he returned there regularly over the years. In fact, his brother lived three doors down from Sergeant Bird. If D'Angelo had decided to draw a line from Exeter to Sacramento for the police and press, Nancy, Christine, 
Linda, Kimberly, and Paige would have been the perfect way to do it. As we discussed in the last episode, Nancy's attack shared important points with both the EAR and multiple TCSO cases. We have almost no details about Linda and Christine other than they were leaving from and heading to known EAR hot zones. We also know that D'Angelo's sister lived just three blocks from Christine's house in the early 70s, and there was an EAR attack six blocks from Christine's in March of 1978, all in a straight line along Ambassador, with the sister's house in the middle. There is no question that D'Angelo knew that exact area. We don't have a lot of information about the homicide scene, but we know that the girls were walked out to where they were found, since it wasn't close enough to a road to be a dump site, and their clothing was found folded under some rocks. Both girls had been bludgeoned with an unknown weapon, and since months had passed, the medical examiner could not determine whether or not they had been sexually assaulted. Since we don't have the police reports, and there was no arrest or prosecution, it's impossible to know what else was observed or collected from the scene. Were there bottles, cans, cigarette packs, or a notebook? We don't know. There was a small amount of publicity about the girls' case after they were found in December, and it included the statement that El Dorado County investigators had obtained the file on Kimberly and Page's case from Placer County. But the connection was dismissed right there since Lane was already in custody. We don't know why Lane was never a suspect in Linda and Christine's case, we assume he had an unshakable alibi for the day they disappeared. Obviously, this reminds us of EPD calling TCSO after Donna was killed and being told that Donna wasn't killed by the VR because they already had Clifton in custody. Also, TCSO making the determination that Jennifer and Donna weren't killed by the same person since Clifton had an alibi for Jennifer's murder. We're not sure we agree with the logic or police work there. So, what happened to Linda and Christine's case? The Sacramento Bee stopped covering their case in 1979, and the last mention we found was a local El Dorado story from 1992. At that point, the case was closed. Investigators said that they had eliminated some other serial killers from the area, like Gerald Gallego, but believed that the girls had been killed by someone only identified as from Idaho. Apparently, the Idaho guy had lived in Sacramento in 1977, and he was a suspect in an Idaho homicide when he committed suicide. El Dorado investigators felt that the M.O. between the cases was solid, and even though the man's widow insisted he could not have killed Linda and Christine, they deemed the case solved and closed it. This is exactly what TCSO did with Jennifer's case for 40 years, and the men they had been accusing for all of those years were totally and completely innocent. It should take more than an investigator's hunch to close a homicide case. The parallels between the Placer and El Dorado cases with Donna and Jennifer are shocking. In the Placer case, young teen girls went missing in the middle of the day. Unreliable witnesses reported seeing a white Ford pickup truck where the girls were last observed. Police found empty soda and beer cans and a notebook at the scene. One of the girls was partially unclothed, but there was no sexual assault and there was an unidentified bludgeoning weapon. After being arrested, it turned out that the suspect had a solid alibi with multiple witnesses who were all dismissed as liars by the DA, and the only evidence that connected the accused killer to the scene was an item the suspect claimed was stolen from his truck. We'd love to know more about the notebook found near Kimberly and Page, but Placer didn't even collect it, let alone process it as evidence. Did it belong to Lane? 
Was it meant to point to him, but when police missed the clue, an anonymous Nevada City businessman stepped forward with his license plate number? It is now accepted that D'Angelo took items from homes and cars, including guns, and used them in later crimes as weapons, tools, red herrings, and framing. It's a major part of his M.O., and it was identified all the way back to Visalia in 1975. This isn't a guess or a theory. It's an established fact. Although any of the girls could have willingly accepted a ride from their killer, we know that D'Angelo used his badge to kidnap at least one victim who was out walking in the middle of a weekday. Jennifer disappeared just two blocks from where her friends were waiting, and Donna's boyfriend testified at trial she declined his offer of a ride home. Neither girl seemed to be looking for a ride. We don't know how far away from Christine's house on Ambassador Linda and Christine made it. There is no evidence that they got to an arterial or that they were hitchhiking. It was just a guess after law enforcement's runaway theory was disproved by their murders. Although Kimberly and Paige were clearly hitchhiking, they may have actually been trying to get a ride in Auburn when they were last seen. Did a local police officer tell them they were under arrest? Citizens tend not to report tips involving sightings of police or police vehicles because they assume that law enforcement is already aware of those contacts. And that could have benefited D'Angelo in any number of cases between 1973 and 79, maybe even before that, while he was interning with Roseville PD. Jennifer, Nancy, Linda, Christine, Kimberly, and Paige were all taken from urban areas and driven about 20 minutes to remote rural areas in different police jurisdictions. It's also possible that Donna was kidnapped in Exeter PD jurisdiction and moved to TCSO. We don't believe this was random chance. It was deliberate. Obviously, these moves confused the investigators, but it also may have played upon law enforcement squabbles known to the offender, or he may have chosen police departments he knew didn't have experience with complex homicides or ones to which he could easily feed tips and false leads and gather information about the state of the investigation. Law enforcement should be open to all of these ideas and consider cases that don't look like the traditional VR, EAR, or ONS MO. D'Angelo has also created another particularly ugly and unpleasant reality. Law enforcement and prosecutors across California need to go back and look at their old cases that were closed without convictions or may have had wrongful convictions. Jennifer, Linda, and Christine failed to get justice because their investigators arbitrarily decided they knew who did it. If the case was too weak to prosecute, it was too weak to close, period. The 1974 mass rape attempt outside Visalia had an acquittal, and Kimberly and Page's case ended in three hung juries, and these cases were all closed as, we know who did it. Nancy's case disappeared after charges were dismissed against Robinson, who was obviously innocent. We've long believed that a 1978 Exeter homicide that had two hung juries and an eventual Alford plea for time served was the VR. In addition to Clifton, there was a man in Orange County who also died in prison in 2013. That case was classic D'Angelo, and the single piece of evidence against the accused was a law enforcement informant who claimed the suspect had confessed. After awaiting trial in jail for five years, 
He accepted a plea that was supposed to mean his quick release, but turned into 34 years. It's easy to look at D'Angelo for unsolved open cases, but it's going to take real courage and a full examination and admission of past mistakes to truly hold him accountable for all of his actions and to bring justice to all of the victims and their families.